This episode has bank robbers, Bitcoin, blockchain, and bacon. Maybe those are the four Bs of fintech. And as it turns out, not all of them are a thing. This show is all about separating hype from fundamental change. I'm Paul Jarley, Dean of the College of Business here at UCF. I've got lots of questions. To get answers, I'm talking to people with interesting insights into the future of business. Have you ever wondered, is this really a thing? On to our show. I have a murky past. I paid my way through graduate school by teaching macro and microeconomics to inmates in a federal penitentiary. How I got that gig is a story for another day. Suffice it to say, it's not easy to get into a facility like that. Most of my students were drug dealers, counterfeiters, or tax evaders. My best student was a bank robber. So when I first heard of Bitcoin and its alleged underworld origins, I thought, yeah, government's gonna shut that down right away. It's not going to be a thing. Some South American countries like Bolivia and Ecuador have shut down Bitcoin. Many countries in the Muslim world have too. Countries like China have made it difficult to trade. Others like India and Canada have safeguards that keep it out of its banking system. But here in the United States, Bitcoin is legal. Why? To answer that question, I went to my resident hater of all government regulation. Well, that's a little harsh. He's the director of the UCF Institute of Economic Competitiveness, Dr. Sean Snaith. So hey, Sean, got a couple of questions for you. All right. Sean is one of the most recognized people at UCF, and his office is just down the hall from mine. So why are cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin legal? Doesn't government have a monopoly on money production? They do. Uh, and the thing is, with Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, they really haven't infringed greatly on the role of money as, as the medium of exchange, that is, official government money. So it's uh, not really legal tender, is what you're telling me. No, you, I, I can't be forced to accept Bitcoin in payment. Now, if I was willing to, then you know we do see transactions where Bitcoin's functioning as the medium of exchange, but it's not widespread, and that's why I think the government is not, uh, you know, sort of clamping down on on Bitcoin uh, in a forceful way. It's not. Um, taking revenue away from the government that the government you know, accumulates by being able to create money, which is a significant amount. But what about using Bitcoin on a day-to-day -day basis? From that time it started, initiated, till it really is completely verified, it's an hour of wait time. That's Hongwei Chen, UCF finance professor and leader of our Emerging FinTech program. Hong is explaining that your typical Bitcoin transaction takes about an hour to process. Too long to pay for gas at the pump or your groceries in the checkout line. He goes on to note that Bitcoin has other drawbacks as a medium of exchange, especially for small transactions. The transaction cost is too high because the cost to record a transaction doesn't matter is whether it's one Bitcoin or a Satoshi, right? By the way, a Satoshi is named after the alleged founder of Bitcoin. It's the smallest unit of Bitcoin. It's 100 millionth of a single Bitcoin. So it's the same record, same mm -hmm. amount of work. So I, I can think maybe in the future, if it happens, it will be for large transactions, not for small transactions. So I just don't see Bitcoin becoming such a common medium of exchange that it's going to worry the US Treasury or the Federal Reserve. It's more likely to be a niche product reserved for very large transactions. But even here, price volatility may limit its usefulness. This huge volatility that hinders people's willingness, or business willingness, and people, individuals' willingness to accept Bitcoin as payment. Case in point, over drinks the other day, two of my friends talked about the guy who mowed their lawn. 
He had worked for a person a few years back who paid him in Bitcoin. He later cashed that Bitcoin into the tune of $250,000. Those turned out to be really expensive lawns to mow. Imagine the windfall or loss that might come from a much larger transaction. But where there is price volatility, there is also speculation. So I sought out a few of my investor friends to ask them what they think of Bitcoin and whether they held any as part of their investment portfolio. Well, Bitcoin is highly speculative. That's Jim Balashak, principal at Dinja LLC and a Hall of Fame member. Jim's not buying Bitcoin. I think that it's been driven up by a lot of people just following the, the trend and there's no real underlying earnings factor, no PE, no forward growth that you can measure. And I think that just makes it too speculative to me. So is there another kind of cryptocurrency that you prefer, that you think is a, a worthy investment of one kind or another because it's backed by something? And could you give me just some sense of what that is? I haven't really looked at detailed. I mean, there was one that came out from Oscar Mayer a few weeks ago called Baycoin, backed by Bacon. That seemed to have at least have something. Like linked to the commodity market uh, for pork? I, I, I think just linked to... I think it's just really a promotion. Yeah. <laughs> now, Bitcoin backed by bacon. That's something I can get behind. But Jim's main point is that without something tangible backing Bitcoin, it's just too speculative for his blood. My friend Michael Donnell, on the other hand, does invest in Bitcoin. Mike, like Jim, is a member of our College of Business Hall of Fame and is a serious investor. Mike, so why invest in Bitcoin? Not, why not just invest in gold? It seems like a lot of work. Well, the reason I invested in it really was because there's a guy by the name of Champath Pahalipita, who was one of the one of the original people in uh, Facebook and a really smart guy. I think the longest executive. And he's now a maybe one of the top experts, if not the tech, top expert in the world in cryptocurrency. Or he said it took him 18 months to understand it. And he said, I don't know for sure, because nobody does, whether or not it's going to succeed or not succeed. But I'm recommending that anybody with wealth invest 1% of their assets in this asset class because it has a high potential for a massively high return in these early stages. Mike's willing to devote a tiny part of his portfolio to a speculative investment and let it ride. He's not worried about whether people can predict day-to-day -day or even annual fluctuations in price. But other people, like David Metcalf, are. There's been two hits that I've uh, watched. David is a senior researcher for the Institute of Simulation and Training here at UCF. Of course, just general supply and demand and the hype. You can put it on something like Gartner's hype curve and kind of see where it falls in and out. But the other thing that I've watched closely is when there's been currency destabilization, like right after Cyprus and right after the austerity movements in Greece, where there was flight of capital, safe places for some people, to put and store their wealth versus the uh, fiat currency. So that was one of the main uses for other cryptocurrencies. In this sense, cryptocurrency may act a lot like gold, which is also seen as a hedge against currency risk. This flight to safety is also emphasized by Alexander Golding, a serial entrepreneur and thought leader on cryptocurrency and social enterprise. You know, a safety play, I definitely see that. Um, I think that the 10% daily price swings we see here in Bitcoin is much less than the devaluation of the Zimbabwean dollar or the Venezuelan Bolivar or some other 
cryptocurrencies. Um, furthermore, in terms of how do we measure and evaluate the price of Bitcoin, there are some people who are trying to do that, and they produce institutional-grade research. And they've figured out um, how some of these scientists are modeling the price of Bitcoin and how people are coming to these price forecasts. Um, I personally think that a lot of it is driven by hype. I don't think anyone can deny that a lot of it's driven by hype. I still believe in it, though. I still think that the acceleration of wealth that has happened because of cryptocurrencies will inspire a huge amount of innovation and scientific and entrepreneurial experimentation. Alexander's faith in Bitcoin as a source of inspiration strikes me as a very long play. Bitcoin's not the sort of investment I'm planning on including in my retirement portfolio. So if Bitcoin isn't likely to be a significant medium of exchange, and it's too speculative for most investors, what problem is Bitcoin really solving? Back to Hong Wei. The main problem it solves is the trust problem in a transaction. So usually when two parties are doing transaction, if they are not face-to-face, usually they need a, an intermediary. So uh, with Bitcoin, so you do not need the intermediary because it has a... Uh, shared network so the system can provide the trust that we usually need to find from a, an intermediary. We've heard a little now about blockchain. It's the technology that powers Bitcoin. But what exactly is it? Jim Balashek had a pretty good explanation. So blockchain is a distributed ledger that goes back to verify transaction publicly uh, Across many computers, so no one person can erase, erase or validate <laughs> all by themselves. It's a distributed ledger. So the blockchain technology is good. It eliminates a lot of middlemen. It could save more fees. So blockchain is a versatile technology with some major potential benefits. Well, I think international payments is one where, especially the large multinational banks, you could see a, a significant decrease in costs there. That's Jim Adamchek. He's Senior Executive Vice President and CLO at Fairwinds Credit Union, and he likes what he sees in blockchain. Um, I've seen lots of examples where accounting and audits, uh, you know, the auditing departments could use blockchain in, um, you know, record integrity. Oh, the most intriguing one to me, though, is in Know Your Customer, which most banks spend a ton of money on verifying who's in front of them and um, going through the government-regulated process of understanding who their customer is. And I could see blockchain really kind of coming to the aid of banks and helping them uh, understand their customers much better and not have to re-verify something that the block has already verified multiple times. So if Bitcoin promotes transparency, why is there this perception that Bitcoin protects anonymity and that it was used by drug dealers to mask their transactions. You know, I think there's some misconception of the Bitcoin. So actually, it can be traced. So if I were a drug dealer, I don't want to use Bitcoin because mm-hmm. there's trace. In, in the Bitcoin network, every money goes in into an address, public key. They, you know, every transaction where the money goes in in the future, you can trace out there as a tree. So uh, it's actually more transparent. Yes, very transparent. So, so, well, you do not know exactly the identity of that is behind each 
address, yes. so-called public address. But with big data, I'm sure it's very easy to figure out who is doing what. Mm -hmm. Security, transparency, trust, elimination of the middleman. There's a lot to like there. But even sophisticated technology like Bitcoin and blockchain can't save people from themselves. As Hong Wei explains, there's the issue of keeping track of your 64-digit random key that gives you access to your Bitcoin wallet. So you can write down, right? Well, then it is <laughs> silly. You can store a digital wallet. You have to have a wallet in order to access your, your Bitcoin. It has to reside on a computer or your, your, your smartphone. Hard disk failure could cause loss mm -hmm. as well. So, so yes. It, but I think like for many individuals, it's really how do you remember your private key? So does that explain, I thought I read an article, maybe it was a month or so ago, about the first theft of Bitcoin, that somebody had engaged in a Bitcoin heist. Yeah, so, so they must have stole their key. Yes, yeah, stole a key and a hack into your a computer uh, or computer. cell phone. Yeah. And, yeah. Hmm. So exchanges can be hacked, right? Because right. They, like with exchanges, lots of exchanges, you just like for us, we just store our wallet on remotely, mm -hmm. and if they have a so to access the the wallet, you have to have some password, right? So right. maybe some people store it in your email account. Mm -hmm. The email is not clear. <laughs> it's not so secure, right? So, right. so you get into your email account or what, your, your computer and then it can be gone. And then there's this warning from Sean Snaith. You have a Bitcoin purse and there are exchanges. But you know, one of those disappeared in Japan and guess what? All the Bitcoins are gone. Yeah. You know, there's no FDIC for Bitcoin. You know, your deposits are not insured. We've covered a lot of ground in this podcast and it's time to get to the bottom line. Is Bitcoin really a thing? Will students need to know something about Bitcoin and blockchain to be considered financially literate in today's world? Or can they just skip it? In two or three years, I think people will think, hey, you are a finance major, you don't know FinTech. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sean agrees. I think Bitcoin and the technology that's behind it is something that students should learn about. From Jim Balashak. I do think that it is a thing because there are a lot of people who are putting their money in it. From Alexander. I'm a long-term believer in Bitcoin as an investment. From Michael Donnell. I don't want to learn about cryptocurrency at this point in my life. You're going to have to yeah. because it's happening. Well, from David. We'll see if they still know the name Bitcoin, but mm -hmm. I think they'll definitely know blockchain and cryptocurrencies in general. From Jim Adamchek. While cryptocurrency might not be the next big thing, I think blockchain is, is something for us to be paying close attention to. It's my podcast, so I get to go last. Let's be clear. Bacon is most certainly a thing. Bitcoin, on the other hand, might be to blockchain what Netscape was to the internet. In the early days, if you wanted to get on the internet, you used Netscape. It was the browser. But Netscape couldn't keep pace with upstart competition and was eventually replaced by better browsers. I suspect the same will be true for Bitcoin. It's an early adopter of blockchain that will likely give way to more sophisticated cryptocurrencies and platforms. Blockchain most certainly appears to be a thing. Bitcoin not so much. So what's your take? Check us out online and share your thoughts at business.ucf.edu slash podcast. You can also find extended interviews with our guests and notes from the show. Special thanks to my producer, Josh Miranda, and the whole team at the Office of Outreach and Engagement here at the UCF College of Business. And thank you for listening. Until next time, charge on. Charge on.